Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, The Repairer of Reputations, by Robert W. Chambers. The time had come. The people should know the son of Haster, and the whole world bow to the black stars which hang in the sky over Carcosa. Vance leaned on the table, his head buried in his hands. Mr. Wilde drew a rough sketch on the margin of yesterday's Herald with a bit of lead pencil. It was a plan of Hauberk's rooms. Then he wrote out the order and affixed the seal, and shaking like a palsied man, I signed my first writ of execution with my name, Hildred Rex. Mr. Wilde clambered to the floor and, unlocking the cabinet, took a long square box from the first shelf. This he brought to the table and opened. A new knife lay in the tissue paper inside, and I picked it up and handed it to Vance, along with the order and the plan of Hallberg's apartment. Then Mr. Wilde told Vance he could go, and he went, shambling like an outcast of the slums. I sat for a while, watching the daylight fade behind the squared tower of the Judson Memorial Church, and finally, gathering up the manuscript and notes, took my hat and started for the door. Mr. Wilde watched me in silence. When I had stepped into the hall, I looked back. Mr. Wilde's small eyes were still fixed on me. Behind him, the shadows gathered in the fading light. Then I closed the door behind me and went out into the darkening streets. I had eaten nothing since breakfast, but I was not hungry. A wretched, half-starved creature who stood looking across the street at the lethal chamber noticed me and came up to tell me a tale of misery. I gave him money, I don't know why, and he went away without thanking me. An hour later, another outcast approached and whined his story. I had a blank bit of paper in my pocket on which was traced the yellow sign, and I handed it to him. He looked at it stupidly for a moment, and then, with an uncertain glance to me, folded it with what seemed to me exaggerated care, and placed it in his bosom. The electric lights were sparkling among the trees, and the new moon shone in the sky above the lethal chamber. It was tiresome waiting in the square. I wandered from the marble arch to the artillery stables and back again to the lotus fountain. The flowers and grass exhaled a fragrance which troubled me. The jet of the fountain played in the moonlight, and the musical splash of falling drops reminded me of the tinkle of chained mail in Hallberg Shop. But it was not so fascinating, and the dull sparkle of the moonlight on the water brought me no such sensations of exquisite pleasure as when the sunshine played over the polished steel of a corselet on Hallpark's knee. I watched the bats darting and turning above the water plants in the fountain basin, but the rapid, jerky flight set my nerves on edge, and I went away again to walk aimlessly to and fro among the trees. The artillery stables were dark, but in the cavalry barracks the officers' windows were brilliantly lighted, and the sally port was constantly filled with troopers in fatigue, carrying straw and harness and baskets filled with tin dishes. Twice the mounted sentry at the gates was changed while I wandered up and down the asphalt walk. I looked at my watch. 
It was nearly time. The lights in the barracks went out one by one. The barred gate was closed, and every minute or two an officer passed in through the side wicket, leaving a rattle of accoutrement and a jingle of spurs in the night air. The square had become very silent. The last homeless loiterer had been driven away by the gray-coated park policeman. The car tracks along Wooster Street were deserted, and the only sound which broke the stillness was the stamping of the sentry's horse and the ring of his saber against a saddle pommel. In the barracks, the officers' quarters were still lighted, and military servants passed and repassed before the bay windows. Twelve o'clock sounded from the new spire of St. Francis Xavier, and at the last stroke of the sad-toned bell, a figure passed through the wicket beside the portcullis, returned the salute of the sentry, and, crossing the street, entered the square and advanced toward the Benedict apartment house. Lewis, I called. The man pivoted on his spurred heels and came straight towards me. Is that you, Hildred? Yes, you are on time. I took his offered hand, and we strolled toward the lethal chamber. He rattled on about his wedding and the graces of Constance and their future prospects, calling my attention to his captain's shoulder straps and the triple gold arabesque on his sleeve and fatigue cap. I believe I listened as much to the music of his spurs and saber as I did to his boyish babble, and at last we stood under the elms on the 4th Street corner of the square opposite the lethal chamber. Then he laughed and asked me what I wanted with him. I motioned him to a seat on the bench under the electric light and sat down beside him. He looked at me curiously, with that same searching glance which I hate and fear so in doctors. I felt the insult of his look, but he did not know it and I carefully concealed my feelings. Well, old chap, he inquired, what can I do for you? I drew from my pocket a manuscript and notes of the Imperial Dynasty of America, and looking him in the eye said, I will tell you, on your word as a soldier, promise me to read this manuscript from beginning to end without asking me a question. Promise me to read these notes in the same way, and promise me to listen to what I have to tell later. I promise, if you wish it, he said pleasantly. Give me the paper, Hildred. He began to read, raising his eyebrows with a puzzled, whimsical air, which made me tremble with suppressed anger. As he advanced, his eyebrows contracted, and his lips seemed to form the word, Rub. Then he looked slightly bored, but apparently for my sake read, with an attempt at interest, which presently ceased to be an effort he started when in the closely written pages he came to his own name. And when he came to mine, he lowered the paper and looked sharply at me for a moment. But he kept his word and resumed his reading, and I let the half-formed question die on his lips unanswered. When he came to the end and read the signature of Mr. Wilde, he folded the paper carefully and returned it to me. I handed him the notes, and he settled back, pushing his fatigue cap up to his forehead, with a boyish gesture, which I remembered so well in school. I watched his face as he read, and when he finished I took the notes with the manuscript and placed them in my pocket. Then I unfolded a scroll marked with a yellow sign. He saw the sign, but he did not seem to recognize it, and I called his attention to it somewhat sharply. Well, he said, I see it. What is it? It is the yellow sign, I said angrily. Oh, that's it, is it, said Lewis, in that flattering voice which Dr. Archer used to employ with me 
and would probably have employed again had I not settled his affair for him. I kept my rage down and answered as steadily as possible. Listen, you have engaged your word. I'm listening, old chap, he replied soothingly. I began to speak very calmly. Dr. Archer, having by some means become possessed of the secret of the imperial succession, attempted to deprive me of my right, alleging that because of a fall from my horse four years ago, I had become mentally deficient. He presumed to place me under restraint in his own house in hopes of either driving me insane or poisoning me. I have not forgotten it. I visited him last night, and the interview was final. Lewis turned quite pale but did not move. I resumed triumphantly. There are yet three people to be interviewed in the interests of Mr. Wilde and myself. They are my cousin Lewis, Mr. Harbuck, and his daughter Constance. Lewis sprang to his feet and I arose also and flung the paper marked with a yellow sign to the ground. Oh, I don't need that to tell you what I have to say, I cried with a laugh of triumph. You must renounce the crown to me, do you hear? To me. Lewis looked at me with a startled air, but recovering himself said kindly, Of course, I renounce the... What is it I must renounce? The crown, I said angrily. Of course, I'll renounce it, he answered. Come, old chap, I'll walk back to your rooms with you. Don't try any of your doctor's tricks on me, I cried, trembling with fury. Don't act as if you think I am insane. What nonsense, he replied. Come, it's getting late, Hildred. No, I shouted. You must listen. You cannot marry. I forbid it. Do you hear? I forbid it. You shall renounce the crown, and in reward I grant you exile. But if you refuse, you shall die. He tried to calm me, but I was roused at last, and drawing my long knife barred his way. Then I told him how they would find Dr. Archer in the cellar with his throat open, and I laughed in his face when I thought of Vance and his knife and the order signed by me. Ah, you are the king, I cried. But I shall be king. Who are you to keep me from empire over all the inhabitable earth? I was born the cousin of a king, but I shall be king. Lewis stood white and rigid before me. Suddenly a man came running up 4th Street, entered the gate of the lethal temple, traversed a path to the bronze doors at full speed, and plunged into the death chamber with a cry of one demented. I laughed until I wept tears, for I had recognized Vance, and knew that Hallmark and his daughter were no longer in my way. Go, I cried to Lewis. You have ceased to be a menace. You will never marry Constance now, and if you marry anyone else in your exile, I will visit you, as I did my doctor last night. Mr. Wilde takes charge of you tomorrow. Then I turned and darted onto South Fifth Avenue, and with a cry of terror, Lewis dropped his belt and saber and followed me like the wind. I heard him close behind me at the corner of Bleecker Street, and I dashed into the doorway under Harbor Pine. He cried, Halt, or I fire! But when he saw that I flew up the stairs leaving Hallberg's shop below, he left me. And I heard him hammering and shouting at their door as though it were possible to arouse the dead. 
Mr. Wilde's door was open and I entered crying. It is done. It is done. Let the nations rise and look upon their king. But I could not find Mr. Wilde. So I went to the cabinet and took the splendid diadem from its case. Then I drew on the white silk robe, embroidered with a yellow sign, and to place the crown upon my head. At last I was king. King by my right in Hester. King because I knew the mystery of the Hyads, and my mind had sounded the depths of the Lake of Holly. I was king. The first gray pencilings of dawn would raise a tempest which would shake two hemispheres. Then, as I stood, my every nerve pitched to the highest tension, faint with the joy and splendor of my thought, without, in the dark passage, a man groaned. I seized the tallow dip and sprang to the door. The cat passed me like a demon, and the tallow dip went out, but my long knife flew swifter than she, and I heard her screech and I knew that my knife had found her. For a moment I listened to her tumbling and thumping about in the darkness, and then when her frenzy ceased, I lighted a lamp and raised it over my head. Mr. Wilde lay on the floor with his throat torn open. At first I thought he was dead, but as I looked, a green sparkle came into his sunken eyes. A mutilated hand trembled, and then a spasm stretched his mouth from ear to ear. For a moment my terror and despair gave place to hope, As I bent over him, his eyeballs rolled clean around in his head, and he died. Then, while I stood, transfixed with rage and despair, seeing my crown, my empire, every hope and every ambition, my very life lying prostrate there with a dead master, came, seized me from behind, and bound me until my veins stood out like cords, and my voice filled with the paroxysms of my frenzied screams. But I still raged bleeding and infuriated among them, and more than one policeman felt my sharp teeth. Then, when I could no longer move, they came nearer. I saw old Harburg, and behind him my cousin Lewis's ghastly face. And farther away, in the corner, a woman, Constance, weeping softly. Ah, I see it now, I shrieked. You have seized the throne and the empire. Woe, woe to you, who are crowned with the crown of the king in yellow. Editor's note. Mr. Castain died yesterday in the Asylum for Criminal Insane. What an odd turn to such an odd set of circumstances. The man was driven mad by a play. And who knows how deep this rabbit hole goes and how many people's lives and how many people's lives it touched. Touched to no end. And that's what I call getting lost in a good book. And if you want to get lost in a good book, might I suggest Kindle from Amazon.com. They've got all kinds of books for you to read and for you to get lost in. Maybe not to the extent that Mr. Castain did, but you'll enjoy yourself nonetheless. And a baby Jay and the promo code and it will do absolutely nothing for this is not a sponsored read. I would like to remind you that we are always on the lookout for great public domain stories like this one to feature on the podcast. If you know of any, please let us know. Email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel now, tiny.cc slash bbjbedtime. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. 
Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>